Section 29 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matea Bracic. Chapter 9. Germany and the Empire. By T. F. Tout. Part 1. It is a common place to contrast the political condition of Germany on the eve of the Reformation with that of the great national states of Western Europe. In Germany, the dangerous confusion of the national monarchy with the tradition of the Roman Empire had continued fatal to the German kingdom, even after the imperial idea had ceased to exert any commanding influence over men's minds. The royal power, in consequence, became the merest shadow of its former self. Central organization ceased to exist. Private war and general anarchy were chronic. The national life waxed cold when uncherished by a strong national monarchy, and in the end salvation was to come from the development of the rude feudal nobility of the Middle Ages into an order of small independent rulers, so extraordinarily tenacious of their sovereign rank that more than a score of them have preserved it even amidst the changed conditions of the 19th century. While in France, Spain and England, national monarchies, both autocratic and popular, were establishing national unity, ordered progress and strong administration, Germany was forced to content herself with the loosest and most impotent of federal governments. Looking at the course of German history in the 15th century, with knowledge of what happened later, it would be hard to deny the strength of this contrast. Yet there was no very great or essential dissimilarity between the condition of Germany under Frederick III and that of the France of the Almanac and Burgundian feuds. The elements of political life were in each case the same. There was a monarchy whose great history was still remembered even in the days of its impotence and ruin. There was a real sense of national life, a consciousness so strong that it could bend even the selfish instincts of feudal nobles into cherishing an ambition wider and more patriotic than that of making themselves little kings over their own patrimony. The strongest of the German feudal houses was less well organized on a separatist basis than the Duchy of Brittany or the Duchy of Burgundy and few indeed of them could base their power on any keenly felt local or national tradition or upon anything more solid than the habit of respect for an ancient house moreover the ecclesiastical states might have been and both the small nobility and the wealthy numerous and active free towns actually were permanent counterpoises to the absolute supremacy of the greater feudatories in a way to which french history supplies no parallel all medieval history shows how the possibilities of despotism lurked even in the most decrepit of feudal monarchies, and how the most disorderly of feudal barons could be constrained to use their swords to further national ends. Even in its worst decay, the German kingship still counted for something. The king of the Romans, as the German king was styled before the papal coronation gave him the right to call himself Roman Emperor, was still the first of earthly potentates in dignity and rank. The effective intervention in European affairs of a German king so powerless as Sigismund of Luxembourg would have been impossible but for the authority still associated with the imperial name. The German kings had indeed no longer a direct royal domain such as gave wealth and dignity to the kings of France and England. 
they were equally destitute of the regular and ample revenue which ancient custom or the direct grant of the estates allowed the kings of france and england to levy in every part of their dominions but the habit was now established of electing on each occasion a powerful reigning prince as emperor and a virtually hereditary empire was secured for the house of luxembourg and afterwards for its heir and sometimes rival the house of habsburg the emperors thus possessed in their personal territories some compensation for their lack of imperial domain proper and feudalism was still sufficiently alive in germany to make the traditional feudal sources of income a real if insufficient substitute for grants and taxes of the more modern type the imperial chancery issued no writ or charter without exacting heavy fees no family compact between members of a reigning house no agreement of eventual succession between neighbouring princes was regarded as legitimate without such dearly purchased royal sanction even where the emperor's direct power was slight his influence was very considerable he no longer controlled ecclesiastical elections with a high hand but there were few bishoprics or abbeys in which he had not as good a chance of directing the course of events as the strongest of the local lords and his influence was spread all over germany while the prince was powerless outside his own neighbourhood all over germany numerous knights nobles ecclesiastics and lawyers looked forward to the emperor's service as a career and hope of future imperial favour often induced them to do their best to further the imperial policy if indirect pressure of this sort did not prevail the roman court more often than not lent its powerful aid towards enforcing imperial wishes there was no great danger that the feeble monarchs of this period would excite general opposition by flagrant attacks on the traditional authority of their vassals and in smaller matters it was more to the interest even of the greater princes to keep on good terms with caesar than to provoke his hostility by wanton and arbitrary opposition to his wishes another weighty advantage accrued to the german monarch from the circumstance that his chief rivals were every whit as badly off in dealing with their vassals as he was with his the well-ordered territorial sovereignties of a later generation had not yet come into existence the strongest of the imperial vassals were still feudal lords and not sovereign princes the resources at their disposal were those of a great feudal proprietor rather than those of an independent ruler outside their own domains they had few means of exercising any real power their vassals were as hard to keep in hand as they were themselves impatient of control by their sovereign when even the imperial court was destitute of the appliances of a modern state the smaller princes could only govern in a still ruder and more primitive fashion their revenue was uncertain their means of raising money were utterly inadequate their army consisted of rude feudal levies and they had no police no civil or diplomatic service although they could be trusted to struggle stoutly and unscrupulously for their immediate interests they were the last body of men to frame a general policy or depart from their traditional principles in order to suit the temper of the coming age the very numerous small princes were infinitely worse off than their greater brethren the free towns though much better able to protect themselves than the weaker princes were powerless for aggression the diet of the empire reichstag was the ancient and traditional council of the emperor it remained a purely feudal body in which none save tenants-in-chief reichsunmittelbare had any right to appear 
its powers were sufficiently extensive but its constitution was only very gradually settled and there was no real means of carrying out its resolutions the method of its convocation was extraordinarily cumbrous besides sending out regular writs it was the custom for the emperor to dispatch various officials throughout the empire to request the magnate's personal appearance at the diet in the case of the more important princes this process was often several times repeated yet it was seldom save perhaps at the first diet of a new king or when business of extraordinary importance was to be discussed that many princes condescended to appear in person in their absence they were represented by commissioners who often delayed proceedings by referring to their principals all questions on which they had not been sufficiently instructed this habit was so strong with the delegates of the towns that it seriously delayed their recognition as an estate of the realm which they had claimed as a right more than fifty years before it was formally conceded when the preliminaries were over there was always in consequence of the lateness of the appearance of some of the representatives a considerable delay before proceedings could be opened very often the early comers went home before the last arrivals appeared at all proceedings began when the emperor or his commissioners laid the royal proposition before the estates for ordinary debates the diet was divided into three curiae colleges or estates but it was not until fourteen eighty nine that the estate of the free and imperial towns definitely secured its right to appear in all diets beside the higher estates of electors and princes procedure was extraordinarily complicated and cumbrous it was not until the end of the fifteenth century that such elementary principles as the right of the majority to bind a minority or the obligation of absent members to abide by the proceedings of those that were present were definitely established it was often after many months discussion that the imperial recess upsheet was issued which concluded the proceedings and the great expense involved in prolonged residence at the seat of the diet was a real burden even on the richest princes in all the colleges voting was by individuals but so personal was the right of representation that the splitting up of a principality among the sons of a prince gave each ruler of a part a voice equal to that of the ruler of the whole the smaller tenants-in-chief the imperial knights were not regarded as an estate of the empire and were excluded from all part in the diet neither the custom which secured that the voting power of a much divided house should be no greater than that of a family whose power was vested in a single hand nor that which gave only collective votes to the counts prelates and towns had as yet sprung into existence the incompetence and costliness of the diet made it very ineffective in practice the empress hesitated to convoke an assembly which by its theoretical powers might effectually tie their hands while the estates were averse to wasting time and money in fruitless and unending deliberations side by side with the constitutional representation of the empire diverse local and private organizations had gradually come into being to discharge efficiently some at least of the duties that the estates were incompetent to perform the oldest among these was the meeting of the six electors Kurfürstentag of these high dignitaries the three archbishops of mainz cologne and trier and the count palatine of the rhine commonly acted together 
while the two eastern electors, the Duke of Saxony and the Margrave of Brandenburg, had more discordant interests. The seventh elector, the King of Bohemia, was excluded as a foreigner from all electoral functions save the actual choice of the king. The Golden Bull of 1356 had given privileges which raised the electors above their brother princes into the first estate of the empire. They had such full jurisdiction over their territories that it became the ideal of all other princes to obtain the electoral privileges. Succession to their lands was to go by primogenitor, and every Easter they were to hold an electoral diet. Regular yearly meetings of the electors as prescribed by the Golden Bull did not become the fashion, but the habit of common deliberation became firmly established and the carelessness of the Luxembourg emperors, as to all matters not affecting their hereditary dominions, gave the Electoral College an opportunity of playing a foremost part in national history. The electors claimed to be the successors of the Roman Senate, if not the representatives of the Roman people as well. The attitude of a Wenceslas, a Sigismund, or a Frederick made possible a real sharing of the functions of government between emperor and senate, such as is imagined to have existed in the primitive division of power between Augustus and the Senate of his day. The six electors deposed the incompetent King Wenceslas in 1399 and formed in 1424 the Electoral Union, Kurfürstenverein of Bingen, in which they pledged themselves and their successors to speak with one voice in all imperial affairs. Fourteen years later, the same electoral union was strong enough to adopt for imperial elections the precedent, already commonly set in ecclesiastical elections, of prescribing the direction of the policy of their nominee. The conditions imposed on Albert II before his election prepared the way for the form of Wahlkapitulation, which assumed so great an importance in imperial history with the election of Charles V in 1519. In the same way, it was the close understanding between the electors that made possible the programme of imperial reformation championed by Berthold of Mainz. It was only after great differences of policy had permanently divided the electors that Berthold's dream of a united Germany became impossible. Less constitutional were the extra-legal combinations of those minor estates whose members found that without corporate union they were powerless to resist their stronger neighbours. Before the end of the 14th century, the imperial knights had formed a number of clubs or unions, each with its captain, and regular assemblies, to which King Sigismund had given a formal legitimation. Of these, the most important were the Knights of St. George, an organisation of the chivalry of Swabia which took a conspicuous part in creating the Swabian League. Even earlier were the associations of the towns. Of the unions of the 13th century, the Hanse League alone remained, and this was now steadily on the decline. But the southern and western cities formed local leagues with periodical deliberative assemblies. In course of time, other general diets of town representatives were established. Even after the cities had definitively won their right to a limited representation in the diets, these meetings continued, being held often for the saving of expense and trouble, side by side with the imperial assemblies. It was well for the princes that the antagonism of knights and cities was as a rule too strong to enable them to work together. 
The strength of the Swabian League was in no small measure due to the fact that towns and knights had both cooperated with the princes in its formation. Neither emperors, nor diets, nor the voluntary associations of classes and districts sufficed to give peace and prosperity to the empire. The unwieldy fabric had outgrown its ancient organization, and no new system had arisen capable of supplying its needs. Every aspect of 15th century history shows how overwhelming and immediate a need existed for thoroughgoing and organic reform. The area of imperial influence was steadily diminishing. Italy no longer saw in the emperor any one but a foreigner, who could sometimes serve the turn of an ambitious upstart by selling him a lawful title of honour that raised him in the social scale of European rulers. Even the Hundred Years' War did not prevent the spread of French influence over the Middle Kingdom, and the Aralate was now no more an integral part of the empire than was Italy. But parts of the old German kingdom were falling away. The outposts of Teutonic civilization in the east were losing all connection with the power which had established them. Imperfect as the union established between Scandinavian kingdoms at Kalamar proved to be, it had dealt a mighty blow to the power of the Hansa, while the choice of the Danish king as Duke of Schleswig and Count of Holstein had practically extended the Scandinavian power to the banks of the Elbe. In the northeast, the Teutonic Knights had been forced by the Treaty of Thorn to surrender West Prussia to the Polish kings outright, and to hold as a fief of the Slavonic kingdom such part of Prussia as the Poles still allowed them to rule. Bohemia under George Podibrad had become an almost purely Slavonic state, whose unfriendliness to German nationality and Orthodox Catholicism might well threaten the renewal of those devastating Hussite invasions from which Germany had been saved by the Council of Basel. In Hungary, German influence had disappeared with the extinction of the House of Luxembourg. The Magyar king, Matthias Corvinus, conquered the Duchy of Austria from the Habsburg Emperor and died master of Vienna. The Swiss Confederacy was gradually drifting into hostility to the Empire, and the House of Burgundy was building up a great separatist state in the low Dutch and Walloon provinces of the Netherlands. The utter defencelessness of Germany was seen by the devastation of the Armagnacs in Elsass. New prince of the Empire arrested their progress. The stubborn heroism of the Swiss League alone stayed the plague. And beyond all these dangers loomed the terrible spectre of Ottoman aggression. Matters were equally unsatisfactory in the heart of Germany. Private war raged unchecked, and the feeble efforts made from time to time to secure the public peace, Landfriede, were made fruitless by the absence of any real executive authority. The robber knights waylaid traders, and great princes did not scruple to abet such lawlessness. The very preservation of the public peace had long ceased to be the concern of the emperor and empire as a whole, and local and voluntary unions, Landfriedensvereine, had sought with but scant result to uphold it within the limits of local and precarious conditions. The lack of imperial justice brought about such grave evils that the estates sought to provide some sort of substitute for it by private agreements, Austriege, referring disputed matters to arbitration, and by that quaint etiquette which made it a breach of propriety for a prince to prefer the solemn judgment of his suzerain to such arbitration of his neighbours. 
The beginnings of an economic revolution threatened the ancient rude prosperity of the peasant and embittered the relations of class and class within the town. The need for reform was patent. From what source, however, was the improvement to come? Little was to be expected from the emperors. Yet even the careless Wenceslas of Bohemia had prepared the way for better things when he not only renewed once more the publication of a universal landfrieder, but also invested with imperial authority the local assemblies representative of the various estates that were entrusted with its execution. Things were worse under Sigismund, 1410-37, who could find no middle course between fantastic schemes for the regeneration of the universe and selfish plans for the aggrandizement of his own house. When his inheritance passed to his son-in-law, Albert II of Austria, 1438-9, the union of the rival houses of Habsburg and Luxembourg at least secured for the ruler a strong family position, such as was the essential preliminary for the revival of the imperial power. Albert II's device for securing the general public peace of Germany rested upon an extension and development of the local executive authorities, and thus contained the germ of the future system of dividing the empire into great territorial circumscriptions known as circles, Kaiser, destined ultimately to become one of the most lasting of imperial institutions. But Albert passed away before he was so much as able to visit the empire and in the long reign of his kinsman and successor Frederick III, 1440-93, the imperial authority sunk down to its lowest point. A cold, phlegmatic, slow and unenterprising prince, Frederick of Austria busied himself with no great plans of reform or aggression, but seemed absorbed in gardening, in alchemy and in astrology, rather than in affairs of state. Under his nerveless rule, the Luxembourg claims over Bohemia and Hungary passed utterly away. A large proportion of the Habsburg hereditary lands, including Tyrol and the scattered Swabian estates, were ruled by a rival branch of the ruling house represented by the Archduke Sigismund, while Austria itself fell into the hands of Matthias Corvinus. Yet, in his cautious and slow-minded fashion, Frederick was by no means lacking in ability and foresight. If he were indifferent to the empire, he looked beyond the present distress of his house to a time when politic marriages and cunningly devised treaties of eventual succession would make Austria a real ruler of the world. Even for the empire, he did a little by his proclamations of a general Landfriede, while his settlement of the ecclesiastical relations of Germany after the failure of the conciliar movement at Basel implied with all its renunciation of high ideals, the establishment of a workable system that kept the peace until the outbreak of the Reformation. The Vienna Concordat of 1448 put an end to that tendency towards the nationalization of the German church, which had been promoted so powerfully by the attitude of the prelates of the German nation at the Council of Constance, and which had been maintained so long when, under the guidance of emperor and electors, the Germans had upheld their neutrality between both the disorderly fathers of Basel and the grasping papal curia at Rome. In the long run, this nationalizing tendency must have extended itself from ecclesiastical to political matters. Even in the decline of the Middle Ages, the union within the church might well have prepared the way to the union of the state. 
in accepting a modus vivendi which gave the Pope greater opportunities than now remained to the Emperor of exercising jurisdiction and levying taxation in Germany, Frederick proved himself a better friend to immediate peace than to the development of a national German state. Three signal successes gilded the end of Frederick's long reign. The power of the House of Burgundy threatened to withdraw the richest and most industrial parts of the empire from the central authority. But the sluggish emperor and the inert empire were at last roused to alarm when Charles the Bold made the attack on their territory that began with the siege of Neuss. It was an omen of real possibilities for the future when a great imperial army gathered together to relieve the burghers of the Rhenish town. The new League of the Alsatian cities, which was formed to ward off Charles's southern aggressions, was a step in the same direction. And even the old League of the Swiss Highlanders, which finally destroyed the Burgundian power, was not as yet avowedly anti-German in its policy. But, as in church affairs, Frederick stepped in between the nation and its goal. At the moment of the threatened ruin of his ancient enemy's plans, he cleverly negotiated the marriage of his son Maximilian with Mary, the heiress of Charles the Bold. Soon after the last Duke of Burgundy had fallen at Nancy, Maximilian obtained with the hand of his daughter the many rich provinces of the Netherlands and the free country of Burgundy, 1477. It was not, however, for the sake of Germany or the empire that Frederick sought a new sphere of influence for his son. The Burgundian inheritance remained as particularistic and as anti-German under the Habsburgs as it had ever been under Valois rule. But the future fortunes of Austria were established by an acquisition which more than compensated the dynasty for the loss of Hungary and Bohemia. The other late successes of Frederick were likewise triumphs of Austria, rather than victories of the empire. The Duke of Bavaria Munich had profited by the internal dissensions of the House of Habsburg and won the goodwill of the aged Archduke Sigismund of Tyrol. It was arranged that on Sigismund's death without legitimate issue, Tyrol and the Swabian and Rhenish Habsburg lands should pass to the Lord of Munich. Frederick bitterly resented this treason, but alone he could hardly have prevented its accomplishment. Yet the prospect of such an extraordinary extension of the Wittelsbach power frightened every petty potentate of Bavaria and Swabia. In 1487, the princes and bishops, abbots and counts, knights and cities of Upper Germany united to form the Swabian League, to maintain the authority of the emperor and to prevent the union of Bavaria and Tyrol. Its action was irresistible. Tyrol passed quietly under Frederick's direct rule and an armed power was set up in the south which enormously strengthened the effective authority of the emperor. The subsequent expulsion of the Hungarians from Vienna after the death of Matthias 1490, followed as it was by a renewal of the ancient contract of eventual succession with Vladislav of Bohemia, who now succeeded Matthias in Hungary, restored the might of Habsburg in the east as effectively as the Burgundian marriage had extended it in the west. It was characteristic of the old emperor that he grudged his son any real share in his newly won power. The third Habsburg triumph, the election of Maximilian as king of the Romans, was carried through the Diet of 1486, in despite of the opposition of the emperor. In consequence, Maximilian entered upon his public career as the leader of the opposition, 
and as favouring the plans of imperial reform to which Frederick had long turned a deaf ear. The purely dynastic ambitions of Frederick were reflected in the policy of the strongest princes of the empire. We have seen how anti-German were the ideals of such imperial vassals as Charles the Bold of Burgundy and the Dukes of Bavaria. Equally anti-national was the policy of the elder or palatine branch of the Wittelsbach house, then represented by the elector Frederick the Victorious, 1449-76, to a magnificent and ambitious ruler who gathered round his court doctors of Roman law and early exponents of German humanism, Frederick pursued his selfish aims with something of the strength and ability as well as with something of the recklessness and unscrupulousness of the Italian despot. He made friends with the Czech Pordybrad and with the Frenchman Charles of Burgundy. He was not ashamed to lure on the Bohemian with the prospects of the imperial crown and anticipated the emperor Frederick's boldest stroke in his scheme to marry his nephew Philip to marry of Burgundy. Not even Albert the Fourth of Munich was more clearly the enemy of the empire than his kinsman, the wicked Fritz. The dominions of the elector Palatine were indeed scattered and limited. Yet he was not only the strongest, but the most successful of the imperial vassals of his time. The failure of his dearest projects showed that the day of princely autocracy had not yet come. End of section 29